Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, founder of Prescott HR and host of the HR and Cocktails podcast, Kimberly Prescott. Hey, what you drink? That sounds like an opportunity for all of us, really. You know, and I've heard it said that your strengths taken to the extreme become a weakness. I could be preaching to myself at this point. One of the things that you're, I mean, you're doing a number of different things now. So you've got your own uh, organization that you're running, you're speaking, you've got your own podcast, and yet you're taking time <laughs> to appear on this podcast. I want to get your support and get your thoughts around what is the connection between whiskey, jazz, and leadership? Because for me, this is just... This is just how I think, right? It's kind of hard for me to dissect things that connect in my mind. But what's the connection for you? Why would you agree to add this to all the other things that you could be doing with your time? Well, first of all, Galen is just an overall awesome person. And how can you say no, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you've been talking to my mom. I can tell you've been talking to my mom. <laughs> No, no, no. So, you know, as I have a podcast called HR and Cocktails, you know, I joke sometimes, but not really that HR makes you drink. So I will say that the <laughs> that the whiskey part, I it resonates with me. Um, and then, of course, jazz makes you dance. And so does drinking sometimes. It depends on what kind of um, person you how you respond to it. But I will say that, you know, I feel that it's important to add levity to uh, any situation, right? You know, we work so hard and we do so much um, to run our businesses, to lead our organizations. It's important for us to have an outlet. And I think that now more than ever, it's okay for us to do it in a way that's not quote unquote PC. I think, you know, 10 years ago when I was working at corporate, if I was like, I'm going to be on the show called Whiskey, you know, Jazz and Leadership, they'd be like, um, excuse me. Or if I was like, I'm going to start a podcast called HR and Cocktails, they'd be like, yeah, no. But I think now we are in a time where we can bring our whole self and be who we are. I love whiskey um, in all of its forms, whether it's bourbon or rye or straight or whatever it is, right? And I love jazz and leadership is essential. So I think that for me, it means bringing your whole self to everything that you do. Mm, wow. You have just described the core of what I had hoped to capture. And quite honestly, the challenge that I was given after launching my first podcast, which is the Leadership Toolbox, which was just as you described. It was, I created while I was still in corporate America and I was concerned about being politically correct. I continued it even after I had left corporate America, but there was still this thought that I might go back. And once you put something out in the, uh, in the ether, it's kind of there, but it wasn't a full reflection of my whole self. And that's when whiskey jazz and leadership was born. You know, whiskey is about doing what you enjoy with people who you enjoyed with 
regardless of what other people might think. They're not part of your crew. They really don't count. Jazz is about how do you get from where you are to where you really want to be, even in instances where there might not be sheet music for you to follow, right? You still have to get there. You know, you said earlier, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you don't, if you don't kill something, you, you, you probably won't eat. So you got to figure that out. And then for me, leadership is this idea that nothing happens until someone does something. Nothing happens if someone does something, and I'm fond of saying that every success and every failure begins and ends with leadership. If your organization is not succeeding, the first place you need to check is what is the leadership doing? If your organization is succeeding, then the leadership should be thinking about what's going to happen next, what's coming next. So talk to me a little bit about how that has, how those three things have impacted this journey that you've been on, you know, where uh, were there periods where you didn't quite know what the next step was, but you had to kind of figure it out as you go along? Absolutely. I will say though, that the, one of the best decisions I made was getting an executive coach. And I'm sure you can appreciate that. My executive coach helped me to not have to guess as much and not have to figure it out as much. My coach is really good for me because she lets me throw things against the wall and have the conversation with her. And I can tell within two questions that she asks me whether or not whether or not that idea made sense or not. I remember um, during COVID, I wanted I was like, well, a lot of small companies don't have payroll companies that you know service them and focus on them. So I was like, I am going to start a payroll company. She asked me two questions, and I was like. Well, that's not a good idea. Uh, not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, the figuring it out part, yes, you do. But I truly, truly believe that there are advisors that you should work with that can help you to get there faster and with a lot less pain. You know, I truly believe that if I had not had my coach during this journey, I would only be halfway to where I am now. She has truly, truly, truly given me the direction that I needed. And quite honestly, she doesn't tell me what to do. She just asks me questions and kind of is like, well, how's that working? Well, how do you think that's going to work? What do you plan to do with that? And when I can't articulate it or when I say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, that sounds crazy. I don't think I should do that. <laughs> so, you know, there's always times in this journey where I'm asking myself, am I doing this correctly? But I think that having a coach along the way has been very, very helpful. And I would say to any leader, whether you own a business, whether you're an executive in an organization, I feel that any leader above um, you know, a director, or even if you're a director, should have some type of coach. It's a game changer. Well, you know I would endorse that. I mean, not only am I a, a certified executive coach, but I have two coaches that I work with for that very reason, that it is just so difficult to see things clearly when you're in it, when, when it's your money. It's so much easier to talk to someone, to bounce some ideas off of. And if professional athletes could have coaches, if beginning athletes can have coaches, then executives need to have coaches for the exact same reason. Um, many athletes have multiple coaches. So I just don't know how you get there without someone 
in your corner, helping you to identify if there are some um, some blind spots, if there are areas that you need to watch out for. So my hat is off to you and sounds like you've got a good one because she's doing exactly what any good coach would do, letting you make the decision. I mean, it's got to be your decision, but yeah, we, we should be asking questions to help you think through the implications of these decisions that you're making. So my hat is off to, to you and to her. Yes. And I also have two coaches. I have added another coach in a peer group to my um, circle. I don't think we can do any of these things alone. We really can't. I mean, I'm an HR subject matter expert. I'm not a business owner, subject matter expert. I'm not a business development, marketing, development, any of those things. Those are not my areas of expertise. So I need other people to help me with that. Fantastic. And, and you don't, I mean, you know, when you think about whiskey, though, you've got a pretty strong whiskey game, too. It's like, you know, we've had a couple conversations and I know your leadership game was pretty strong. You can tell. Or at least I can tell. But the whiskey game you're coming with, I mean, Uncle Nearest, uh, Jefferson's Ocean. Okay, so now you're playing with some, you're starting to step into some areas that not everyone has heard about. Jefferson's Ocean, Sagamore Rye. Look at you. Look at you. Yeah, you know, I do what I can. You know, I'm um, right now I'm enjoying um, a Jefferson Ocean 24th Voyage. Um, so it's really good. I love Sagamore because they're local. Um, it's a Baltimore um, distillery. They are very embedded in the Baltimore community. So I really um, enjoy theirs. Um, and they have several that you can only buy if you go to the Sagamore distillery, which is great. Um, they have a sherry cask, a Caribbean cask. They have a bunch of great options for a rye. And then, yes, Uncle Nearest, I will be honest. I think my inner you know, Georgia girl just connects with the story of Uncle Nearest, the history of Uncle Nearest. And whenever I have the opportunity to tell that story, I do. I sit on a lot of nonprofit boards and I had the opportunity to do, because because I do HR and cocktails, people will ask me like, oh, you know, for this fundraiser, can you come make a cocktail? Sure, I'll make a cocktail. So I made an Uncle Nearest lemonade which was basically a Lynchburg lemonade, which is Jack Daniels, but it was with Uncle Nearest. So I had the opportunity to tell the story of Uncle Nearest and quite honestly pay homage to him and his, you know, him being a master distiller, um, the first, and um, the story of, of Uncle Nearest. So I definitely appreciated good Uncle Nearest. It is an amazingly compelling story. And I'll tell you, uh, just today, I'm talking to Uncle Nearest. I'm trying to get them on Whiskey Jazz and Leadership. Okay. If you so, get Fawn Nearest on, I mean, Fawn Weaver on, call me. Call me. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you. If you get Fawn Weaver on, please. Like, I will just listen. I won't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, we got Fawn Weaver, you know, I got her. I'm stalking her. Victoria Butler, uh, Sherry Moore, uh, just all of these folks. I mean, there's one way to stop all these emails, and that's just to say yes. So, yes. <laughs> so, t talk to me a little bit about this. Can I call it an infatuation with Prince? Uh, <laughs> it is not an infatuation, it is a long term love affair. Okay. 
It started when I was five. And um, so this is the thing. And this is what I need parents to hear and understand. So my aunt was 18 and she moved in with us and my mother was older than her. And so my aunt loved Prince. And so I was five. And so my mom would be like, don't listen to that music that your aunt is listening to. So I listened to that music of that course, my aunt was of course. listening to. <laughs> and it was Prince. And my aunt was obsessed with Prince. And so I became obsessed with Prince. And yes, it is a very long-term love affair, which includes a couple of tattoos and some other things. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, I really bonded with you over that a lot of people who are just casual Prince listeners might not even understand or appreciate is just how deep his appreciation for music actually went. And there were several albums that he's done where it was all instrumental. It was all jazz. And for me growing up, the two albums that, that really captured my imagination was Madhouse. There's Madhouse 8, Madhouse 16. And unless someone told you that this was Prince, you would not know. You know, once you hear this is Prince, then you pick up on those Prince cues and they become very obvious. But, oh my gosh, just his commitment to music was unparalleled. I, I, I don't know what we do now with no Prince around. So talk a little bit about just his commitment to music. Yeah. So I will say, you know, there are those people that try to compare him to his contemporaries. I will not name them. Um, but I will say Prince was the ultimate musician and his respect for music was so strong. I remember um, Beyonce had an interview after she opened the Grammys with him and someone asked her, what did Prince say to you? And she said, learn. she said that he told her to learn how to play an instrument. Right. Because, yes, your voice is an instrument, but just who else can write, play every instrument, produce, do every vocal, make an entire album by themselves? No one else. Right. And I don't think that people who don't really listen to music for what it really is may be able to fully appreciate that. But when you look at the back of any, now we don't really have albums and CDs anymore, but when you look at the credits, there's 15, 20 people involved. Prince, it's Prince. That's it. It's just him. I play classical piano. I play the flute. I read music. That's what I do. If you give me the instructions, it's like making a cake, like Betty Crocker. Like, give me the instructions, I can do it. It was inside of Prince. It was just inside of him. And, you know, when I think about what you said, like when you hear something, you hear the Prince cues. I think, you know, people who appreciate Prince know it as the Minneapolis sound. And so, right. So you hear the Minneapolis sound and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I know what that is. There's just not enough words or enough time to just describe just the absolute genius and talent that was Prince. Wow. You know, and, and the thing that I am. OK, so I'm a fan of his music. I'm a fan of his stage performance, but the thing that I have really grown to appreciate the older I've gotten is just his commitment to his craft and that he would literally lock himself in his studio for days and forget to eat <laughs> because he was creating 
something. And, you know, even the stories about that we're starting to hear more about, you know, what's in the vault now, that he's got so much music that he has never heard. He never heard that music again after he created it. He basically just created, put it in the vault, and he moved on to something else. And I can relate to that from the standpoint of this leadership thing when people talk about finding your zone and being in the flow. He was the embodiment of being in the flow and in the zone of music. What what could leaders learn from and take from that element of, of Prince's life and work? That is a really great question. I think when I think of Prince as a leader and, 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 and correlated to leadership, I think about the fact that he, he never took excuses. Everyone who was on his team had to be the best mm. um, and they knew it. And they knew they always had to come with their best and they had to keep up with him because he was not going to wait for them. He was not going to wait for them. And so I think that for leaders, it's really making sure that you are setting your expectations and setting your standards and not modifying them for anyone, bringing everybody with you and making sure that everyone is able to sing in tune, play on time and do what they need to do. I'll tell you one, one of the people that he always reminded me of not in the totality of everything that Prince did, like you just described, but just in that commitment to the sound that he was looking for, his commitment to his craft. And that is, you know, one of my favorite musicians of all times, and that is Miles Davis. And one of my cherished vinyl is the Crucial album, where you've got Prince and Miles Davis together. And I think it was just one performance. And they found a way to capture that. And it was just amazing to see two people who were dedicated to, to their craft. And even some of the, some of the, uh, uh, the later interviews with Miles Davis, he mentions Prince as being one of the, for him, one of the new cats <laughs> that seemed to really understand what this music thing is about. Talk to me a little bit about, cause you've, you've got some, you've got some jazz chops too. I mean, you're listening. John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. I mean, talk to me a little bit about this commitment to craft that seems to run as a thread uh, between all those folks that we've been talking about. Yeah. I, you know, when I think about jazz, because we, my husband and I go, there's a place in D.C. called Blues Alley. And uh, we'll go there and, you know, it just feels so... I guess, um, impromptu, that's how it feels. And it just feels like everybody needs to be in alignment. Everybody needs to be on the same page. And there's one person who's kind of giving a direction and everybody else is following and they're feeling it and it's inside of them. And I, I appreciate that just from an organizational perspective, from a leadership perspective, because like, yeah, you know, we're all, you know, doing the same thing. There's one person who's kind of taking the lead but we're all just feeling it and we're just vibing off of each other and going where we need to go. And, 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 and that's what I really like about it. And that's what I would correlate for sure. Okay. So yeah, talk to me a little bit about this connection that we've talked about this, this through line between whiskey, jazz and leadership, but we're, we're starting to talk about people who see their work as a, 
as a practice or as a craft. And I, I've I've actually stopped calling the work that I do a job or a career. It's a craft. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about Miles Davis or we talk about Prince or we talk about John Coltrane. You know, towards the end of John Coltrane's life and career, he said that he was no longer playing for people. He was playing for God. And we were just listening. And that's what that's what Love Supreme was all about. It was a conversation between he and God. And that's a whole nother level than just thinking of this as a job or as a career. How how does that concept impact what you're doing as an HR professional? I liken HR to a practice similar to medicine or law because you practice it. You know, you're never going to see the same scenario twice. You mean you, you maybe some of the details might be the same. You might be able to diagnose an issue, but it's not always the same. And so I think that, you know, when I think about HR as a craft, it is something that you have to hone in on. That's why I think for a lot of people who are new to the profession of HR, they say, you know, it's really hard to get into HR. They always want someone who has experience. And to a certain extent, that's true. Because when you are dealing with the complexities of, you know, as we are now in COVID, there's COVID, there's disability, there's FMLA, there's workers' comp, there's all of these things that overlap, and you truly do have to understand how to navigate that world. And so I agree 100% um, when I think about what we do as a craft or practice, because it takes continuous, continuous exercise and practice of that muscle. Um, I think you know, when I think about Coltrane, when I think about Prince, when I think about anything, you know, the, any of those people who are excellent at what they do musically, they have endless rehearsals, endless practices. I mean, they're people who work with them are like, we would practice for 12 hours, We, you know, and that's what we have to do as professionals who um, hone in on what we do. We have to practice it. Um, we have to study it. We have to make sure that we're getting continuous education on it, that we're talking to our peers, that we're talking like you and I are talking now, that we're just having conversation about it, that it becomes a part of who we are. Because I don't think that you could have Prince without having music. I don't think you could have Coltrane without having music. It was who they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a part of that, that, that their, their DNA. And so I think that, you know, when you learn to love what you do the way that we do, it becomes a part of who you are. Wow. I love that. I love that. One, one last thing I want to ask you about uh, on this side of the velvet rope, because I am going to pull you into the VIP room to finish this conversation. But the last thing I want to want to get your thoughts on before we go into the, the VIP room is your invisible board of directors. Now, th these are people who you may have met. You may not have met them but you tend to think about them as you make decisions. And I liken it back to my days of playing basketball as a youth. Uh, there were things that I physically was not able to do, but at that time, my idol, my role model was Julius Dr. J Irving. And there was nothing that the doctor couldn't do. So those moments when I would embody Dr. J, I could do things that my my peers didn't know what was happening because 
they they thought they were playing against Galen, but they were playing against the Doctor. So these are folks that that represent that for you, and you've listed some pretty uh, some pretty heavy hitting folks, but they're not all from the same genre. They're not all from the same same practice. You've got the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Oprah Winfrey. But then Beyonce and then Billie Holiday. Talk to me about your invisible board. What do all of these ladies mean to you and why would they end up on your board? Yeah, so I think I have to start with the fact that the tagline for my business is unintimidated HR. And what that really means is that we tell people what they need to know and not what they want to hear. And in my corporate life, I was always called intimidating And one day my husband brought me a Dale Earnhardt hat and uh, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, what is this? And he was like, Dale Earnhardt was known as the intimidator. And so if you're going to be intimidating on it. And so it took me a while to figure that out, but I understand it now. So when I think of those women, I think of those women as women that they're not concerned about what people think about them because they have things that they got to get done. They just got to get these things done for history, for themselves, for posterity. These these women have a mission. Um, When I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, she was the first of so many things, right? Um, And she, you know, she argued so many cases before the Supreme Court that you couldn't even imagine that she she couldn't have imagined that she would have argued them and even won them doing that while helping her husband through law school while he had cancer, right? I mean, think about that. Helping your husband, writing his notes in law school while you're going through law school, while you're doing all these things and while he has cancer. I think about Oprah. Oprah broke down so many invisible walls and became an icon and, you know, just a legend and media mogul. Um, I think about Beyonce. Beyonce just... She knows that she has a platform and she uses it. I mean, because I've seen um, the Netflix series Homecoming so many times, right? But when I think about what her purpose was for, for Homecoming, her purpose for Homecoming was to put HBCUs and the experience of going to an HBCU on the Coachella stage. HBCUs have never been to Coachella. Right. You're actually not supposed to do that. Right. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And then Billie Holiday, you know, she had a lot of demons. Okay, And so I understand that. But who doesn't? But that song, Strange Fruit and being from Georgia, being first generation integrated schools, I it resonates with me that she would do that that she would do it even though she got booed, even though she got shows canceled because she wanted people to know what was happening to her people at that time, that people were being hanged from trees. That's what Strange Fruit was, right? And it didn't matter to her. She died in a hospital, handcuffed to a bed because of the persecution that she received from a variety of things that happened in her life. And so even though I know she's probably probably not the, the choice that many people would think about, but I just think about people who 
they just use their platform and they, and, it, and, and, and they do what they need to do. And so, I, I, I mean, I'm sure this is probably a PG podcast, but these are just badass women, you know, and, and they did what they needed to do and use their platform. And, I, and that's who I would want on my board. I like it. I like it. And I, I, you know, I want, I want to carry this conversation into the VIP room because uh, I, I see a lot of that energy showing up in how you present. And, and now I've got an understanding, at least a small understanding as to where that may be coming from. And, uh, Again, I just, again, I, I, we got to carry this into the VIP room. My VIPs need to hear this. And if you are not a VIP, I, I don't know what to tell you. you you're going to miss out on this because Kimberly Prescott is the real thing. And I've seen a lot of HR and I've worked with a lot of HR professionals in my corporate life. And I can see now that they didn't see their work as a practice. Uh, they didn't see it as a craft. Uh, they they saw it as a job and and God bless them they they tried to do a really good job and they did have nothing but honor and respect for those HR professionals but it's not the same energy that I'm getting from Prescott HR and it's certainly not the same energy that I get when I listen to uh, HR and cocktails so uh, for now I I'm gonna ask you to raise your glass. And uh, let, let's toast out. Thank you so much for this conversation. This is absolutely the embodiment of what I wanted to share with my listeners, the real talk of what it takes to be effective in whatever role that you might decide to go into. And you have definitely delivered on that. How can people get a hold of you if they want to tune into any of the things that you're doing? How can they, how can they find you? Sure. So our website for Prescott HR is www.prescotthr.com. They can also click on the podcast link to find our podcast, but we're also on all streaming devices, HR and cocktails and as an ampersand. Um, so you can find us on any of the streaming platforms as well. All right. Well, thank you so much and um, continued success. And I can't wait to hear what you're going to drop on our VIPs. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>